what is happening in Ukraine, what is happening uh, on the front line during the war. We will try to make a snapshot of the key events and trends during the past week from the 1st of August until the 7th of August 2022. This is a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, I'm chief editor of ukraineworld.org. My co-host is Tetyana Harkova, who is in charge of international outreach at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Hello, Tanya. Hello. Uh, Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the oldest and largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Let me also remind you that you can support us on patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We spend the majority of your support to help civilians and military uh, on the front line. So what were the key events and trends during this week, during the first week of August? Well, uh, let's start maybe with the front line, stating that uh, we are probably entering the third phase of this war. The first one was uh, this attack against Kyiv, Chernigiv and Sumy. It failed. The second war, this um, attempt of the Russian army to capture the whole Donbass. They uh, succeeded partially because they uh, captured uh, almost all the, of the Lugansk region. Um, apart from two or three villages in close to Lugansk in this region. But Donetsk Oblast, Donetsk region is still, uh, a bigger part of it is still under Ukrainian control. What is happening now? We were already telling you that during the last week, a Russian army was trying to reinforce its positions in the south because the Ukrainian army was stating that they are at least the military experts were talking a lot about this counteroffensive of the Ukrainian army, which was pre- preparing in the south. So Russians started to transfer a lot of troops to the south. And uh, what is clear now that they uh, may uh, counterattack in the south. But this week, we also observed um, a kind of uh, intensification in the east as well. First of all, around the village of Piski. Let's situate Piski. Piski is uh, a village uh, close to Donetsk, so really looks like a suburb of Donetsk. Uh, Piski, Avdivka, and uh, the third locality is Bakhmut. So what we see, Russians are really attacking um, quite intensively in the east, and they are preparing things in the south. And um, many experts uh, don't know for sure which direction is the primary one for for Russians, because some say that they are um, trying to transfer troops in order to reinforce south, but it means only to keep the front line as it is now, and the main effort is situated in Donbass. And others say that maybe... They uh, stopped their uh, main effort in Donbass and in Avdiivka, in Piski, in Bakhmut. This is a secondary effort. And they are preparing instead a huge uh, counteroffensive uh, in the south. We can call it, why uh, do we call that counteroffensive? Because um, during months, at least from starting from May, late May and then June and July, Ukrainian army was uh, counterattacking on a tactical level, but still in the south. And around 50 localities, 50 villages were liberated during these months. This is not something spectacular because this is not very uh, something very quick, but um, Ukrainian army was advancing um, in the south. So still... 
we don't know. We are not sure what uh, is the real plan of the Russian army. And we really don't know what is the plan of the Ukrainian army as well. Well, South is indeed the key, uh, maybe the key uh, battlefield right now. We have seen, and this this is something that we talked to you about in our previous podcast, we have seen that Ukrainians were very efficient in uh, showing that they can cut, Ukrainian army can cut the logistics and supplies of the Russian army around Kherson. Let us remind you that Kherson is located on the river Dnipro, the biggest uh, river in Ukraine, or you can call it Dnieper according to Russian pronunciation, but Dnipro according to Ukrainian pronunciation. Kyiv is located on Dnipro, and the city Dnipro is located on Dnipro, Cherkasy is located on Dnipro, Kherson is located on Dnipro, Zaporizhia is located on the Dnipro, right? So major cities, of course, are located on this river, and uh, Kherson is mostly on the right bank uh, of, of Dnipro. And this is the farthest uh, the Russian army has proceeded on the right bank, actually. And there, uh, they're controlling Kherson, but uh, Ukrainians are shelling the key bridges over Dnipro. There are two Antonivsky bridges, one railway, one uh, road bridge. There is another bridge, and there is also a bridge in Novakakhovka, but there is a um, hydro power plant there electricity plant, very also important for for Ukraine, for southern Ukraine. And uh, right now, as far as we see, the, the very precise uh, strikes by Ukrainian army over these bridges uh, in Kherson make for Russian army partially impossible to cross the river, either for supplies or as, you know, coming back as retreat if they want to retreat. So they are very fragile in their supplies, in their logistics. And you mentioned the first phase of the war, when Russians suddenly left uh, the occupied territories in Kiev region, in Chernihiv region, in Sumy, in the north primarily. And we have traveled with you uh, <clears throat> a lot in villages uh, around Kiev, and the same pattern, we, he we, we hear the same pattern, that they have left in one day in maybe half an hour, just got the order and all the tanks in the occupied village have left, primarily on the th uh, 31st of March. And we still ask the question why they have left so quickly, not because of heavy fights, most probably they were afraid of being cut uh, from the logistics supplies because they were too far away from the border. Uh, the situation can repeat in the south because if there are only ways to of logistic supplies are bridges over Dnipro and these bridges are damaged, well, they they find it very difficult to to continue supply Kherson. But at the same time, as we mentioned earlier, they really need Kherson because they are planning a referendum, the so-called referendum, in early September to attach the Kherson Oblast. Uh, of the occupied territories to Crimea, to the occupied Crimea. The uh, real challenge is, of course, also this uh, hydroelectric power plant in Novakakhovka because there is a dam. And um, if Ukrainians hit, hit this construction, this can cause very big consequences in, in terms of in terms of huge water, which can uh, which can harm 
even even Kherson or uh, other towns, villages around. So it's 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 it should be very, uh, very very tricky not to flood. Uh, the uh, the the cities and towns. That's it. And another major threat, maybe even more important, is this nuclear plant in Energodar, what we call Zaporizhia nuclear plant. This is the biggest uh, uh, nuclear plant in Europe. It was captured by Russians uh, back in the beginning of March. It was maybe 4th or 5th of March. And uh, this uh, plant, they are, as, as far as we understand, they organized a kind of um, military base on this plant and they are shelling severely uh, severely the town across uh, the river um, and uh, trying to provoke this is also on Dnipro yeah Dnipro yes this is also Dnipro that's trying to provoke um, a fire from Ukrainians and we also have information about that uh, they were mining mining um, uh, places in this nuclear plant. Uh, the personnel of this nuclear plant is taken as hostages for many months already. They are to control all the processes and they still get electricity to Ukraine. So it supplies electricity to Ukrainian regions, I mean also to Kherson, etc. But this is, they try to, now what we, at least what we received um, uh, as information from Energoatom, this is a company which is in charge of these nuclear plants. Uh, in their official communique, they say that Russians are preparing the cutoff of Ukrainian regions from this plant, and they try to reorient this energy to Russia. Uh, so this is what they say. We can, unfortunately, we 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 cannot uh, verify that. But during this week, and maybe this is the major event of this week, there was a quite intense shelling in this place, in in this nuclear plant. Uh, several uh, constructions inside the plant were touched. And the risk is here. There were uh, statements coming from President Zelensky, from Ukrainian government, uh, from, from everybody, from U European partners as well, because this is a major threat. If something happens to this nuclear, nuclear plant, it will be a disaster for, for a big part of Ukrainian territory, and not only Ukrainian territory, because it could be cause some damage to Russia as well and to any countries, because you cannot limit the damage if it's, it comes to that. So um, what Ukrainians were doing during these previous months, they were, uh, they were um, uh, killing uh, Russian soldiers in this uh, in Energodar, in, in this plant. They were doing that with drones. We've seen several videos. Uh, but it was a kind of um, precise strikes against, uh, against soldiers and not touching the, the plant itself. But what is happening now seems to be very dangerous and Russians claim at least that uh, it was a Russian a Ukrainian strike which is uh, don't for, for us don't seem uh, like don't look it doesn't look like that in fact because for Ukrainian army it's extremely dangerous and and I we think that they understand the danger and more, moreover they have quite precise weapons to to do some to to do what they want Yes, and energy, nuclear energy is, of course, a big issue right now in this war. We can talk about Russia's nuclear terrorism, 
Uh, we have seen it already in the in the beginning of this war when the Russians captured Chernobyl nuclear power plants. Plants uh, Chernobyl is not functioning, so the, the the danger was a kind of destruction of the nuclear waste facilities. But the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, the biggest in Europe and I think the second largest in the world, is now occupied by the Russians, and they can do with it whatever they want. They can really make a nuclear disaster there or they can cut Ukraine from electricity. I mean, nuclear energy plays a huge role in Ukrainian electricity supply. So this is also very, And very that's why important. we are talking, at least Zelensky was talking already about nuclear terrorism, which seems to be quite a correct expression uh, as for the situation on the ground. So I think that Russians are intensifying their move to Enerhodar, to Zaporizhia region, also to distract Ukrainian forces from from Kherson. They are really afraid of Ukrainians taking Kherson back. Let us remind you that Kherson is the biggest city uh, captured by Russia and basically the the only large city, the only oblast center out of over 20 which Russians captured. Uh, they also intensified shellings of Mykolaiv. Mykolaiv and Kharkiv, Kharkiv to the northeast, Mykolaiv to the south, I think they are the most shelled cities right now, the most shelled cities, uh, uh, the most uh, frequently hit by missiles. Uh, and in Mykolaiv, for example, uh, there was a tragic event recently, the, the death of uh, Oleksiy Vodaturski, who is a famous Ukrainian businessman and uh, uh, a person who built a company which is called Nibulon, a famous company, world-famous company, uh, which was dealing with exportation of grain and is dealing, of course. The big facilities of the its company is, by the way, in Kherson Oblast. And we, when we traveled to Kherson Oblast uh, last year, we have seen them. This is really kind of a, uh, a country within the state. Yeah. So Vadaturski and Nibulon were building a, a, a river fleet to export this grain. So they were developing not only, not only the, the, the agriculture, the grain, but they were also developing, uh, developing uh, the river transportation. And the thing is that Vadaturski is an old person, was an old person, I think, over, over 70 years old. And he was extremely rich guy, but not an oligarch. Uh, if we understand by oligarch, a person who would make his uh, fortune on rent-seeking, right, on using the state resources. Vadaturski is one of those people, agricultural, big agricultural Ukrainian businessmen who earned the, the fortune on, on real economy, on real global economy, building a company which is, which is a global company. I remember that, for example, it... It was taking loans from European banks like EBRD, European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. You can, or I think it was European Investment Bank. Investment Bank. Yeah. And uh, in order to take a loan from European Investment Bank, you have to be extremely transparent. You have to have a a, a perfect audit. You have to real have really have a good good international reputation. So the story is that he was killed in Mykolaiv during one of the shellings uh, by I think by the missile missiles and yeah. it was um, some some say that it was as 
300 missile, which is basically it should be used for to hit air targets, and that the Russians are now using to hit the land targets. And the thing is that he never left his city of Mykolaiv, despite all these shellings. Of course, he could have left to any other Ukrainian city. He could have left for abroad. He could leave Ukraine because... He was 70-something. He, he was over 60. And uh, uh, the, the ban on, uh, on uh, leaving Ukraine for men is also until 60 years old. So this man and everybody who is who was who knew this man would tell are saying right now that he he was an ex really extremely extremely interesting person extremely extremely good businessman. So one thing that 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 I'm thinking, of course, there is a discussion whether Russians did it on purpose or whether it was occasional. We don't know. We don't know. Yeah. Uh, there can be a theory. Maybe it is conspiracy theory. Maybe not that uh, they really hit on purpose because if they were using a a, a, a missile which uh, which hits uh, a specific target according to coordinates like this s uh, s300 uh, then of course it can be on purpose but the thing is that well history repeats itself uh, we 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 talk a lot about ukrainian holodomor the the artificial famine of at least 4 million Ukrainian peasants in the 30s by Stalin. And uh, the Holodomor was primarily a story of requisition of food. When, when the soldiers were coming to peasants' houses and just taking all the food which was in the peasant houses, including the food for children, for babies, uh, etc. Now Russians are doing the same. Now Russians are uh, expropriating Ukrainian grain, not only... Uh, hindering the the Ukrainian grain e exports, but also expropriating Ukrainian grain uh, from Kherson Oblast, from uh, other oblasts. But they are also killing those people who develop this industry. And uh, in the 30s, in the 20s, in the 30s, they Russians have this concept of kulak, meaning the wealthy uh, peasant. And they would took, go to this wealthy peasant, take all his belongings, her belongings, and send them to Siberia. And uh, this is how they were exterminating this rich, uh, wealthy, successful Ukrainian agricultural class. So maybe this is what's happening now. Yeah, that's it. And talking about grain, let's also maybe mention here that during this week there were some successes in this um, field because uh, one ship left from Odessa port and then several days later there was a caravan, so-called caravan of three ships leaving from uh, Odessa ports from Chernomorsk uh, to different destinations and uh, all of these ships were lucky enough to get to their destinations. These three boats are still, some of them are still on the way, but uh, there were no violation, I mean, security violation on the part of Russia, so that's good news. But let us also explain that, uh, for example, one, uh, one ship was transporting, uh, or three ships, the latest uh, party, they were transporting something like 65,000 uh, tons of um, of grain. But the problem is that Ukraine still has 20 million 
tones of from the previous year. So we need really these departures to be regular. We need at least three ships to leave uh, Ukrainian ports every day in order to be able to um, to export everything from the last year to to make some place for this year and then start to start exportations uh, from this year because according to what say what uh, our ministry of um, agricultural politics they say that uh, this year the 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 harvest will be very good uh, uh, even despite the war and uh, we will have a lot of uh, um, so we'll need a lot of uh, uh, ways to export all that harvest. Otherwise, it will create uh, problems for Ukraine. So at least on this front, we can stay positive because, yes, so it's not enough. That's not a lot. But um, uh, four boats already left Ukrainian ports. And we also know that one Turkish ship uh, arrived to Ukrainian port if I'm not mistaken, a day ago, two days ago, and it was the first ship from the very beginning of this full-scale invasion which entered the Ukrainian ports. So this could be kind of a beginning of a, uh, of a story, of a good story. Let's hope that. Um, we know that the threats are, uh, are real because uh, we, when we talk about ports, we talk about Odessa, we talk about Chernomorsk, about this Black Sea coast. This is uh, close, very close to, to Mykolaiv, then to Kherson, so close to the battlefield. And um, it endangers uh, these exportations for sure. We also know that Russians wanted, and they uh, wanted uh, to include into the, in, in this agreement about exportation of Ukrainian grain. They wanted to include a point on a, a kind of a ceasefire in the south because it was in their interest. They didn't manage to do so. So we are waiting, and we we are almost sure to have some provocations unfortunately in the coming weeks or months yes turkey turkey is trying to play the role of mediator and uh, as far as i see right now the the policy of erdogan's turkey is 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 to try really to find a balance and and to to be the real the the, the key mediator between russia and ukraine they basically the pro brokered this uh, grain agreement and uh, recently Erdogan said that uh, he would hope that for wider agreements on peace between Russia and, and, and Ukraine and invited Zelensky and Putin to, uh, to, to Turkey. For Ukraine, of course, it's not an issue right now. Uh, but, uh, but this process can, can go on. So Turkey is, I think it also invited the Russian banking system, Mir, to, Mir to uh, enter certain Turkish banks. And the they agreed to pay for Russian gas in rubles, which was uh, important for, for Russia. But I would say that, um, at least what experts say, um, that uh, Erdogan plays for sure his own role. And, for example, we do know that he refused any kind of military help 
to Russia. At least uh, there were there were some rumors about Bayraktars, about Russia asking Turkey to create a, a kind of plant in inside Russia to create to 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 to, to construct Bayraktars. This, this will not take place. So there will be no military help from from Turkey to Russia. That's clear. Turkey is a NATO country, so there is no way for for him to to help really Russia. But at the same time, um, uh, Turkey. Uh, has not joined any kind of sanctions uh, from the European Union, from Western countries. So economically, Erdogan tries to play his role and he needs Russia, even in terms of tourists. So this bank system, Mir, they introduced it just in order for Russian tourists to be able to pay by, by their bank cards when they are tourists in Turkey. So this is a kind of a compromise and there is a clear benefit for Erdogan himself. We, d- we do know that uh, Turkey has... Uh, quite a big number of economic problems. For example, the inflation is uh, uh, is extremely high in Turkey for for a couple of years already. So they are trying to 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 play to reinforce themselves, and we also observe their interaction in different theaters, military theaters. For example, in in Azerbaijan, in Nagorno Karabakh, they start starting of this in Syria as well. So this is a complicated story. But um, what we see, at least, what is important for Ukraine that there will be no military aid f- coming from Turkey to Russia. Yes, indeed, Erdogan will be trying to to play this role of a uh, negotiator, but at that very moment, Ukraine is not in line with this initiative, so Ukraine is not about, so we will not discuss any kind of ceasefire. Yeah, but I will not be so sure that there will be no military aid uh, to Russia. Well, we will see. Everything can happen, including with Bayraktar's, Uh, Turkey played a very important role by not letting Russian ships through Bosphor, and this is, of course, if they if they if they if they if this didn't happen, then the situation in the Black Sea for Ukrainians would be more far worse. And of course, the role of Bayraktar, which is now one of the symbols of this war for Ukrainian army, is 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 huge. But as we see, uh, Tur- uh, Turkey is also trying to play in kind of a please Russia and really play this role of negotiator. This is a bad news, I think, for France and Germany, which uh, which were thinking that there will be uh, this mediator and they were uh, in the Normandy format. Uh, I don't know if our French and German colleagues understood it already or not, but this role is over for France and Germany, I think. And, and, and th- there is only one option is to be stand with Ukraine, stand with NATO, stand with the United States, with the UK, Uh, the role of negotiator is is already taken by Turkey, and uh, France and Germany should be really on the side of Ukraine. So let's continue the analysis of the situation on the front line. What is also important is that you mentioned this Luhansk Oblast. Uh, we were expecting strikes, attacks uh, of, of Russia on Slavyansk and Kramatorsk and Bakhmut. It seems that in Bakhmut they continue to do that, but it seems that they changed the accent and uh, were really in the, in the past days attacking uh, Piski and Avdivka, as you mentioned. These are really uh, villages very close to Donetsk. Uh, and of course, I mean, for Russians it would be very, very well fortified, actually, by the Ukrainians. Of course, for Russians it would be very important to to take over them and what we have heard from uh, the soldiers on the ground the situation for ukrainian soldiers was just hell 
was horrible because it, it this is a huge artillery fire i think the number was that Pisky was uh, shelled over three thousand times. Six thousand, six thousand shells okay. during a day. So it, it it's, it's huge. Can so you imagine you that? It's, you just and of course the the it seems that the number of uh, dead U- Ukrainians is quite big. Yeah, but at the same time, let us also explain that Pisky was controlled by Ukraine was kept by Ukrainians since 2014. So uh, during this full-scale invasion, Russians uh, didn't manage to move Ukrainian pos- Ukrainians from their positions, which were there for eight years already. So it means that they were no effort, no significant effort from Russians come during five months already. Almost we are. We are already approaching the end of the six months of this war. So uh, they were unable to do something with this Piski, Avdivka, Marinka, all these localities we do know for years already because they're mentioned all the time in media. So they were unlike, unlucky there. But at the same time, what I've said, so we don't know, in fact, what they're trying to do. We do know that Russia, and this is confirmed by Institute of Study of War and many other um, other foreign intelligence uh, saying that Russia doesn't have forces to attack from from two directions. So they will attack prim- primarily maybe in the south and they are trying to, to organize this kind of illusion of attack in Piskin Avdivka or maybe they are trying to make us believe, make Ukrainian army believe that they are reinforcing their position in the south in order to counterattack. But at the same time, their main effort will take place in Donbass. So nobody knows. So the war is the play. So you, you try to... to, to to cheat, to cheat your your uh, opponent, uh, your enemy. So both sides are doing that. So Ukrainians are also were also talking about counteroffensive in the south for many weeks already. So we are not there on the ground. We don't know exactly, and maybe there's good news that even military experts they don't know really what are the plans. Well, the classic Sun Tzu said that the key in in the war is deception. And this is a fantastic phrase, which I love. Uh, if you are weak, you should force your enemy to think that you are strong. If you are strong, you should force force the enemy to think you, that you are weak. If the, uh, you are little in numbers, you should force the enemy to think that you are big in numbers and vice versa and vice versa and vice versa. So truth is that uh, first during the war, unfortunately, this is also the phrase which is uh, which is absolutely true <coughs> in this war again <coughs> uh, in this war too as well but uh, i think that they're really to to cut the story short they're really trying to test ukrainian positions in different places and shift the accents uh, from different places in the eastern ukraine and the southern ukraine the uh, the line the front line is huge Right. It's 1,200 kilometers if we take into consideration only east and south, and it's uh, 2,000, 2,000, I don't remember exactly how much, 100, 2,400 maybe, if you count with Kiev and Chernihiv. So this is extremely huge. So you cannot have a, an army which would be present at the same time everywhere and as strong as in, in, in every moment, in every place of this front line. So this is a, uh, this is an art, so that art to make war. Let's touch upon the final topic. The big scandal of this week is the report published by Amnesty International, which is criticizing or blaming Ukrainian army 
for taking civilian facilities to defend Ukrainian cities. What can you tell us about this report? Well, yes, indeed, this is a major, major scandal because uh, immediately after it was released, there were huge re- reaction here in Ukraine coming from many different networks. First of all, coming from officials, for sure, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky is the president, but also many other officials were angry with this report. But at the same time, there were a huge reaction coming from the from journalists stating that what is described in this report, it just simply uh, doesn't correspond to facts, to what people, I mean, journalists who move around the country, what they observe in here on, on the ground. At the same time, there were also a, quite a um, quite a negative uh, and very vivid also reaction coming from the uh, human rights defenders from different organizations, not from Amnesty, but from, from others. So um, to cut this long story short, this report was uh, had two major points. Uh, they stated that Ukrainian army put Ukrainian civilians at risk by placing military uh, military bases or whatever by being military present in in residential areas. So they should and and there were also suggestions coming from Amnesty International. So you'd better go somewhere to forests and you just make war somewhere in forests. Just indeed, to, indeed. So the indeed, so so Russians are t- attacking our cities and we should yeah. go to forests. And th- the question is is how 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 could we uh, I don't know defend whatever I don't know Bucha, Irpin or Kharkiv place being placed in in the forest so this is simply impossible so this uh, this war the russians they this is uh, they are talking about a humanitarian um law during the war but uh, there is no um so this is urban war this is a war in cities in villages and anyway military will be present so uh, as what we know what we know from 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 what we experienced ourselves and from what we've been told already uh, uh, when we traveled around Kyiv, but also to, to Chernihiv and to Kharkiv. So we were told that Ukrainian army normally, they do all, all, all what is possible so uh, to, to preserve the lives of civilians. They are evacuating people. They are saying that their positions are here they have uh, sometimes this is the last line of defense, so they cannot. If they are present in schools, it, it means that they have no other building at that place, and they, for sure enough, the, the, there was no children inside, uh, which was not, which is also stated in in small letters in this Amnesty International report. But this is important. So if they were present in schools, it doesn't mean that they were present in schools where children were studying. So this is just a building. So. Um, the reaction was uh, uh, was immediate. It was a real scandal. And let, let me just just add before before you go to the reaction, just to let people understand that first, uh, I mean, if there is if there is a battle for a city, uh, or for a town, or for a village, and you have the you have a certain number of Ukrainian soldiers which are defending it, of course they will go and find a civilian building. Should it be a shop, a a shopping mall, for example, a school, an administrative building? Of course, they will tell everybody to evacuate uh, in the surrounding. They will not go to the residential, uh, multi-story buildings, whatever. 
if there are no such buildings. They will go to the multi-story buildings and uh, uh, force people, uh, urge people to evacuate. They will take the positions as far as possible from the uh, civilians. Uh, this is what we've heard and this is what our colleagues, also journalists who, who travel across Ukraine, uh, are, are also telling. Now, the second issue is that this organization is Amnesty International. Either, well, th there are three versions in my head. Either they are uh, just uh, idiots and do not understand what is happening, mm, or they are idealists and... Uh, they are thinking in terms of how to make the war humane. Well, this is, of course, the Ukrainians also want, want to do that. But they are only thinking in these terms that, okay, the war is happening, well, this is a fact, but let's do it, uh, let's make it humane. The problem is that Russia doesn't care about this. Russia doesn't care about humaneness of war, etc. And therefore, Russians are really shelling the Ukrainian cities, the residential areas. And if they're shelling the residential areas, Ukrainians need to reply to defend these three residential areas, right? And let's let's consider the very realistic scenario if they suggest that Ukrainian army would, would go somewhere in the forest and let Russian army enter the city. We've already had that experience in many places, for example, in Bucha or, for example, in Mariupol. So this is not about to defend human rights when you suggest to Ukrainian army to, to retreat. So in, in, in their becomes... logic, it means that just let your... Let your cities and your villages to the enemy, to Russians, so there would be less casualties uh, between civilians. So this is roughly what they are saying. And they, they will take what they're doing in Kherson they will, or in Bucha, they will kill hundreds, they will uh, torture thousands, they will create filtration camps, and they do as they do in the southern Ukraine, they will deport people. So, so this is something very, very uh, uh, people who've read this report, uh, uh, I mean, especially, they say this is something like, uh, so we invite our listeners to read this report in English and to found proof that this is something completely unrealistic. So this is not about the war. This is not about any kind of real war. This is a kind, a kind of abstract ideas of what human uh, life is very precious. That's why um, we should not make wars. So, and if we make wars, so we better do it that in a different place where civilians live. But in reality, there is no possibility to do so. But maybe the most important, the most dangerous thing about this report is that Russian propaganda, they also started immediately to use these uh, conclusions because they said, oh, oh yes, that's, that's what we, we are saying from the very beginning. We were saying from the very beginning that Ukrainians, they are using civilians as a shield. So to protect themselves, though they are Nazis, they are criminals. So and it also justifies any kind of future attack of Russian army against civilians because they will pretend that oh okay well we saw the way military base there so we we'll, we we are right to hit Kerminchuk or Vinnytsia or whatever. Yes, you're right. This is justifies Russian attack on civilians actually, and uh, the reality is that. Ukrainians are doing everything possible to evacuate people, and we have seen it. For example, we have seen the, the destroyed uh, school in Horinka near Kiev. Uh, just a school which there is even no 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 basement. basement right now. It's just completely destroyed. One of the buildings, and we asked the school director, so what what happened? And she confirmed that yes, Ukrainian soldiers were there 
but uh, there was nobody else in Horinka at that time. Almost everybody has left the, the village. Of course, people with children, there was evacuations. And to say the truth, Russians are did their best to kill many people during the evacuations or uh, not allowing people to evacuate. Uh, there is also a question to these international organizations, actually, who, uh, who want to be impartial and who want to stay in Russia, like uh, International Committee of the Red Cross, like amnesty or whatever. So they are really afraid of, uh, of criticizing Russia because they're, they will be, they're, they're afraid of you know, being kicked off uh, from, from, from Russia or whatever, I don't know. But uh, is there any sense of these organizations if they cannot criticize Russia but only criticize Ukraine? So it's blaming vict- the victim. So the pure game of uh, you just blame the victim, just don't understand what is really going on, so that the war is taking place in Ukraine and every day there are civilians who die, and then you blame Ukrainian army for defending as they can so these uh, the territories and the people. So uh, the question is a good question you asked. So what is the purpose of these, these organizations? Uh, we don't think... Uh, we don't think that they were paid by Russia. We think that it's much more subtle, but we think that uh, they these uh, they are uh, conclusions uh, show that they play. Unfortunately, they play the role of these useful idiots, people who they either do not want to understand the reality of this war, or if they do understand it, they just hide it. And the uh, the outcome is, for example, that. The director of um, uh, Amnesty International branch in Ukraine has resigned, and uh, of course, this is the only possible solution. And she she mentioned this is also important in her post uh, post about the reasons to resign. She explained that there is a conflict of values. She said and that and that, that the central office didn't hear to what the Ukrainians were saying, mm-hmm. and uh, it seems that. From their perspective, I understand that simply this report was not uh, very well fact-checked, and uh, and and the the arguments in this were just just very weak and not uh, taking the facts, the real facts from the ground. Unfortunately, we we are facing some kind of these situations uh, when uh, when international organizations or some international media are. Do not accurately present the facts. This is not a blame game. We really appreciate the work of most international organizations and international media. Of course, that most of them are doing fantastic work, but we should understand that their work should also be fact-checked. And uh, if they have a big brand like Amnesty International, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are right and they are correct. Unfortunately, we are facing a situation of a crisis of international organizations. As as a, as a class in this in this war. Okay, let us let us finish this wrap up of of the past week. This was a weekly digest of our explaining Ukraine podcast, our analysis of key events in and around Ukraine from the first of August until the uh, the seventh of August, twenty twenty two. Follow us on social networks on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. Uh, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, uh, SoundCloud. We are Ukraine World and Explaining Ukraine Podcast. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine. My co-host is Tetyana Harkova from Ukraine Crisis Media Center. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. 
I'm chief editor of Ukraine World. You can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Ukraine World. We spend the majority of your support to help people affected by this war. Stay with us and stay with Ukraine.